Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our very special guest is Fred Eby. Fred is one of the longest tenured employees over at Stein. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks. Glad to be here. So of all the stories that we have out of Stein Seed, Fred's is one of the most fascinating to me. His first role was tending to Harry's livestock back when he was still in grade school. He's gone on to serve as our farm manager for many, many years, and so he's been present for so much of the growth that's happened in our company. So today we're going to talk to Fred about his history with the company and the evolution of Stein Seed Farm and our farm operations. So let's get started. So Fred, to start out, like I said, you've been around for a long, long time. So, so when did you start working with Harry? Well, I first walked beans in 1963 at age 12, 59 years ago, and I actually was walking beans with Harry. <laughs> I mean, he was out there, and he was quite a bit taller, and he still claims he got all our weeds. But, <laughs> and but, that's always, that always happens when you're walking beans. You I, know. Yeah, I don't know if we were getting 50 cents an hour or 75 that year. <laughs> but, but, but so you were out there at 12 years old working with Harry on, on the farm there. Yeah, and then we, you know, walked beans for a few weeks every summer until I got in high school. And then I worked about every summer in high school and college, and we, you know, would help bag beans and stuff after school and Saturdays and stuff all through high school, and Harry was always a lot of fun. And So 1963, uh, we're in 2020, almost to 2023, so that's 60 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's amazing. Amazing. But, so, you know, it was just a few weeks every summer until later. But. Sure, sure. Yeah, but it'd be fair to say you, you've had a long tenure in this operation and seen, like I said, known Harry about as long as anybody we, we have in our company. So my question is, I guess, what are your, some of your earliest memories of working on the Stein Farm? Oh, I remember bagging beans with Harry in the seed house. My brother and I would go over after school or Saturdays, and Harry would sew the bags, and he'd work all day getting the bins full and whatever and doing some other bagging. But then we, one of us would hang bags, and Harry would do the sewing machine, and we just filled the little short warehouse then. It was not very big. And, and that would have been what? Oh, that would have been 70. probably 64. Six to sixty-eight or something. Uh, okay, okay. So yeah, it was great. <laughs> so, um, so then after after high school, you went to went to college. Yeah, I went to McPherson College okay. for two years, and then I went to Iowa State for two years. Okay. And of course, I came back every summer and worked into so the work, farm. You worked at the farm in the summers as well. Yeah. And then you came after after college. Did you come right back? Yeah, to- yeah, I did. I. My graduation date was supposed to be the spring of 73, but since there was farm work then and Iowa State was on a quarter system, I actually did not graduate when I was supposed to, and I worked all until the next winter and then finished up my last quarter in the winter of 74. 
So then in about March of 74 is what I say was my first full time. And then I was not the farm manager for till about a year later. And in uh, 75, I became farm manager. So in that in that year, let's say 1974, that was kind of your first, uh, again, full-time yeah. uh, on the farm. What was the typical day like at that point? Give me oh, a picture had, of what the farm was. We had, you know, we farrowed to finish a 1,000 head of hogs. So there was always feed to grind, feed to deliver. You know, we had 100-plus registered Red Angus beef cows. We were a pioneer cooperator herd. So we, you know, we had horses. We had four horses. We actually... We had the hill farm north of there yep. that was like 300 and some acres of timber pasture, and we rode a lot of horses. <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine that today. <laughs> no, so you've been a cowboy, too. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, in fact, we used to bring the heifers down to the farm, to the pasture there across the road from the office in the fall, and Harry would get all the ladies in the office and everybody, and we would line the roads between hills, and we went three miles down the road with a hundred-some cattle. And so they, they didn't think that was quite in their job description. <laughs> but that, but, but that's, uh, that, that's the essence of Stein Seed, is, yeah. is you do the work that needs yeah. to be done. And that day, we had to move cattle, so yeah. that's uh, fantastic. <laughs> and, so, and working grain operation, yeah, obviously, yeah, you we, had all you that. Know, I think we got our first combine in 76, probably. We'd had the neighbor do it for us. And okay. That was about the time we started getting cab tractors. Before that, it was, you know, you're out there in the oh, dirt yeah. with no cab all day long. <laughs> and and during that time, uh, you know, mid-'70s, you know, Harry was, they were breeding and developing, him with, with Bill, Evie. Yeah. They were, they were breeding and developing these soybean lines, and so there was— Probably seed being grown and having to be bagged sure. for different purposes. So there, there was a period there for I don't know five or six years where I was the main guy to fix all the equipment in the seed house. Oh, really? That <laughs> we had people that knew how to run it, but I was spent a lot of time in there working on the bagger that never seemed to want to work right. <laughs> well, I say that's an important job, <laughs> and everybody knows when it's not working. I'm sure so. <laughs> So you said about a year later, then you became effectively the farm manager, yeah. right? So again, that included the grain and the livestock. Yeah, and, that was and, everything. And all of that stuff. Yeah. So so again, drawing a picture for me of, of what in that late 70s period, because again, most of us only know the seed company from the point when we started the branded business. And it sounds like in those earliest days, it was a diversified farm operation like so many other places. But I assume there was still a focus on, you know, what was to be, which was, you know, breeding oh, yeah. and developing this material, right? Yeah, the seed house, we made that longer there in the mid-70s and uh, shipped a lot of beans to other, you know, we did a lot of wholesale. We'd raise the beans and bring them in there. And I think one year... 600,000 bags came out the door of that seat house. <laughs> and not on pallets. Probably. No, yeah. <laughs> so. We did not have a forklift till I don't know, 1984 or so. <laughs> oh, man, man, big, big work. I guess my question would be, you know, is there a point in time when it occurred to you that this company, this farm operation you're working for, that it was more than just a typical farm operation. Oh, yeah. I Well, I always knew Harry knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. 
it struck me, I was at a class, an agronomy class, and we were talking about seed or something at Iowa State. And the professor started talking about Harry Stein, and I thought, wow, I mean, this is a real deal. (laughs) (laughs) So you're at university, (laughs) and he's talking about your boss, your summer boss. Yeah, and that's that's great. So you move into the 80s, like you said, as the operation starts to grow. I mean, at what point uh, did, you know, again, we started branded sales in 1979. So I guess I'm just curious in terms of framework, was the growth in that operation, meaning the farm operation, was it kind of slow and steady? Was it just kind of explosive in, in fits and starts? Give me an idea of how yeah, that it, evolved. You know, we picked up ground along. We never really expanded. To, oh, maybe 1986, Harry bought a 1,300-acre chunk of ground one day, and that was quite a change. And Yeah, and we, we were always, you know, raising seed beans, but we weren't really doing much corn in the middle 80s. But. So the farm operation just continued to kind of grow along with the seed yeah. business. You know, the need for land dictated the need to uh, the need need to grow the seed business. Yeah, we experimented around with a lot of things. Harry knew Narrow Rose is where we needed to go. So clear back in like 76, he went, I had a 12-row maxi-merge John Deere planter and we bought a six-row and made a hitch behind it and pulled a six-row that was 30-inch, a six-row, 30-inch planter, offset 15 inches. I built a hitch on the back of it. And 12 rows in the front and six rows in the back. So I had to shorten the marker on one side by two and a half rows and shorten the (laughs) marker on the other side by three and a half rows so it would overlap on itself coming back. When we got done, we had like a nine-row effect 15-inch planter. And nobody ever heard or thought of doing that, you know. There was a few people at that time experimenting with drills and stuff, but that that was a deal going down the road. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would imagine. So that so that brings me to a point I really want, I, I wanted to definitely bring up to you because, you know, the farm operation in so many ways is the pulse of what our seed company is about. It's the test bed. It's oftentimes I tell farmers, you know, we're doing things a decade or more in advance of when you might expect to do them because we want to do it first. And, we, and we'll tell you if it doesn't work. <laughs> Some things don't work, but that's okay. So you and your crew have been sort of on the vanguard of that for so long. And one of those things you mentioned is row width. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know the story you just said, but, you know, there was a point in time I don't know, as far back, I mean, I started in the late 90s, and they were already on 22 and a half. I don't know when that started. When Do you know when? Oh, we went to 20-inch rows in 96, and then two years later, for our seed corn yep. configuration, it wasn't working out right for where the males needed to be. So the planters we had, if we made them on 22 and a half, everything worked out, so we had a you know, a male every four rows or something. I can't sure. remember the exact details, but, but so, so we revamped the planter we had. It was a it was a thirty seven row, twenty inch planter that we made into like a twenty four row or something. But yeah, so going back, I mean, so mid nineties, twenty inch rows. Now we're we're approaching thirty years almost since that decision, and along the way, there's been many other configurations, all designed to find you know what's uh, going to be the path forward. And I think our answer has always been, you know, the path forward is is sub thirty. It's yeah, it's, it's narrower than thirty, 
but uh, so we've had 20 inch rows, 22 and a halfs, 12s. Correct. Twin 20s. Yes. And 15s, yes. right? So at every turn, you and your team have had to react and respond to that and convert equipment. Sometimes making equipment. Trying to figure out how to change a row width on a planter that folds in a certain place isn't always the most fun. (laughs) Exactly. And I assume it'd be fair to say sometimes the equipment we needed didn't exist. Correct. And and then what? Well, we just build it. So examples would be? Oh, our examples would be our pickers that we built from John Deere combines for seed corn. Instead of, we wanted to husk in the field. No one made a picker in the seed corn business that actually husked in the field. So we, our first one was we took a John Deere 7700, chopped everything off from the cab back. So it was sitting there in our shop with the wheels and the cab in the feeder house. And we started just building frames and we bought an AK husking bed and put in it. We needed a conveyor then after it went through the, it came through the feeder house into the, husking bed, and then we needed to get it to the top because we needed to have people help sort the corn because that's how they, you do it. And uh, so the first one was really quite a deal. It was a big 14-foot diameter donut like an inverted water wheel that the corn would fall into, and we had motors that turned that thing, and it would carry the corn up to the top and dump it on the belt. <laughs> and yeah. then the corn would go through to the back, and the people would stand there looking for either off-type ears or unhusked ears and stuff. And so that we built that in our shop. And then from then on, we built six more that have two husking beds on them. And we did all that in our, with our own people and our own. And the fascinating part about that is just seeking a different solution if, you, if we don't think that the best one for us has been created yet. And, and that will or that spirit of ingenuity, I think, is what drives that. And, and I've had the opportunity to, to guide a lot of tours on the farm in the summers. And I tell you, that's one of the most, one of the things that, that most people are most fascinated by is the seed corn harvesting equipment. Uh, they really can't believe what they're seeing. And especially that those pieces were, were built locally, just built you know, by people who saw the need and, and created those machines. So, yeah, it's something, when you build your own stuff, it doesn't always quite work. We spend a lot of night <laughs> driving them all day and working on them all night. <laughs> Get it done. So I don't remember if I told you this story. You know, years ago, I was I had a tour group on the farm, and uh, we were showing them the, the harvesters. Actually, we were building, was there, I think in between there, there was one based on, was it an 8800 series? Yes. Yeah, so I think that was the year they were building that. And I took them over the machine shop because the machine was in process at the time. And, and what I didn't know at the time was one of the folks on the tour was a retired engineer from John Deere's Harvester Works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought he was going to have a heart attack when he saw what we had done to his 8800 series combine. <laughs> But then, of course, being an engineer, he was super excited and and he was really fascinated by what was going on. And so he's talking to the machinist, you know, Lee, and uh, he said, you know, I assume that you have a whole host of patents, you know, around this equipment. And he just shook his head and he said, you know, if somebody else wants to try it, they're welcome to it. (laughs) (laughs) 
And again, the idea is not for everybody, but what a fantastic solution for us. And it's worked really well. And I know it's been a lot of work for your team, but I love to show that to our, our guests because I think it it's just the spirit of who we are as a company. And you've done that. We've built and rebuilt planters and built and rebuilt, you know, corn heads and, and just all these different solutions, not even including, you know, some of the other companies we work with uh, who have recognized the need and worked with us on unique technologies, right? Yeah. Yeah. So these, you know, these days looking toward kind of the current time, you, you know, how many folks do you have that we define kind of on the farm crew per se? Because we are a working farm operation. I would say now there's over 50. Okay. You know, it, it, the way it steins, we share people. We, every department helps helps every other department. So there's some areas, there's no definitive line. I mean, we've got people that say, yeah, you're on this payroll. But for instance, the farm crew has done the small increases, which are one to three acre increases that are harvested. And we've planted and harvested those for 30 years. And it's a, kind of a big deal because you got to clean out the planter to every last seed between every number and likewise the combine. So the farm crew has done a lot of that. And now the that's mostly run by the uh, soybean research people. But Sure. But like you said, it's it's more than just, I mean, yes, we're working farm operation, but some of the things that are happening on that farm are, you know, not what I would call typical farm operation things. Like you said, you may be harvesting hundreds of plots and having to clean the combine out between each one, uh, saving seed or not saving seed. You may have, well, of course, <laughs> sea corn production is a whole nother animal, yeah. right, in and of itself. And, and your group is so heavily involved in, in all of that. What are other things that Well, that our farm does? needs to be as big as it is because we always get the new varieties in ahead of everybody else. So we have real-world conditions on just to make sure, you know. So a lot of our stuff no one else has it the first year. Yeah, one thing I think is there's no small test, right, yeah. for, for what we do. It, it, you go all in on and something. And to make all the soybean and corn plots accurate, they need to be farmed on ground that was previously, like, not. You know, so yep, that's all realistic. Crop rotation yeah. and, and all those things. You want to grow it in a farmer's, the way a farmer would grow that in that mm -hmm. same field. Sure, exactly. So we talked about row width, and that leads me into, you know, one of the things that we've had a couple of different guests on over the last few months talking about short stature corn is becoming a dare I say, a buzzword in the industry. Of course, we've been on this topic of corn height and higher populations for a long, long time. And probably nobody else I can think of has had a, a better, what I call cab, in-cab view of the progression of our corn genetics than probably you and your team. Curious, you know, what you've seen over the years as we've gone down this journey of changing the plant architecture and moving toward higher populations. Well, we know that our genetics in narrow rows and high pop can't be beat. I mean, I believe that thoroughly. It, it, it takes some getting used to to have corn head high or whatever, but it, it works well. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, again, it, it, for us, it's not new. You know, I mean, the industry is kind of talking about it now, but, I mean, you're working with, you know, sh let's say shorter than average hybrids. In the night, in the late nineties, right, yeah. and and I mean, it's just been a hallmark of well, trash residue management is so much easier with 
a less statured plant. There's more of them out there, but still, it, it's not like a big gangly yep. thing that you can't get rid of in the fall. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Again, from, from your perspective, because you've had a lot of acres of this, I mean, if, if you've got a farmer who's asking you, saying, well, everybody's talking about this shorter stature architecture, what advantages are there? You just brought one up. It, it's residue management, right? I mean, what else? what else is there? Yeah, well, just higher population makes for more yield. You know, a lot of smaller ears are better than a few big ones. I mean, it, you can't tell by looking, but the higher population with the right genetics. And, and time and again, that seems to be the most deceiving is the idea that that big, you know, baseball bat ear is very, very tempting. But if you add them up, you, like you just said, having a couple of smaller ears is probably going to win almost every time if you got your population right. Yeah. So, you know, population is all relative. So when we talk about things with our customers all over the United States, we always have to be mindful that, that you know, populations are different depending on where sure. you are. Uh, we're fortunate here in Iowa. We have good black soil. We've got really well-managed ground. You know, what do you guys usually shoot for in a commercial well, grain situation? In the 42 to 43 range. Yeah. You know, which is still significantly higher than what our neighbors are planning. Because typical for the area would be 36. Oh, 36 maybe. Yeah. yeah. And a few guys are down at 34, 32. So, so again, in our case, we're often talking about anywhere from 5 to 10 or at the outset, on the outside, maybe 15%. That We tend to talk in percentages. Hey, and th- we this- played around with populations, you know, really high and yeah. found that there's not enough advantage over the level I'm talking about in our soil. Yeah. Yeah. And with the current genetics yeah. that we have today, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Again, you've had this opportunity to see this growth and progression and in, in this of what we've been doing on this corn thing. Is it just as we see the industry starting to embrace the idea of corn doesn't all have to be, you know, 14 feet tall? Is there some, is a little bit of, of uh, comfort for you to know that this is something we've been working on for a long time? And yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, you've, you've been sold on it for a long time. So you're kind of like, welcome, welcome to the party here. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a good concept, and it, it works. <laughs> yep. Again, I, I've had the good fortune to greet a lot of guests who, who've come to visit the farm in the summers, and I always enjoy that because we are a working farm operation, so it's always great for people to see what our operation's doing. And some of those times I've had the opportunity to get you to talk to them, and I always appreciate that as well. So when, you, when we think about our customer base, our customers, you know, what would you want them to understand how how does what your you and your team do benefit them as a customer of Stein C company well you know we test all the new stuff we we just they aren't getting stuff straight out of res, you know research we get it and i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah you're growing at 80 acres 200 acres yeah. 300 acres at a time and so it's it's not not a 15 foot row it's it's real world stuff so, again, you, you know, you, you've been with the company for a long, long time. I guess I'm just curious. I'm sure there's plenty of highs, probably a few lows. What, what, are, what are the moments that stand out to you when you think about your experience here? Oh, just how great Harry is at analyzing data. I mean, he's just a genius at that. 
Just the ability to trust the numbers. Yeah. You know? And I, you know, thinking back, Myron helped me when he was a younger kid. <laughs> or maybe you knew that. Yep. Yep. That was, yeah, a great experience for, you know, Myron is now the president of Stein Sea Company. I mean, he did all kinds of jobs on the farm, as farm kids do. And I think that's a great experience and great background. And you're in... Your son is involved in the yeah. operation as well. Yeah, he works for Bill or Chuck in the soybean research. He's been crossing beans. He's 43 now, and he's been crossing beans since he was 10. <laughs> he would ride his bike. We lived across the field from the office there for okay. years where he grew up, and he would ride his bike over and cross beans every, <laughs> all summer, you know, when they do that. And he's still doing it. That's awesome. Awesome. So, actually, he became kind of a computer geek when he was younger, and— Actually, Mark and I used a hand scanner, and we created the first digital Stein logo that we put out, and our sales guys all, maybe you remember getting some of that. <laughs> cool. And then he and I made the first Stein web page that everybody thought was ridiculous because nobody had internet then. <laughs> <laughs> the Wild West of the World Wide Web in those days yeah. would have been 96, 97, 98. Yeah, for sure. There was a lot of times I helped in the office hook up PCs to the IBM 400. I would was always around in the winter to help do that and stuff. Yeah. So, again, going back to the same idea that job descriptions are a loose term because, you know, one of the great things about our organization is we have so many people that are just there to do the work that needs to be done and chip in where they're needed. And, and as you pointed out, you, you're, you're a great example of that. You've been tech support and, and web development and, and, and farm crew and uh, herd manager, all of those things. Yeah, the best was the day I hired Steve Luther. He took over. He's now running the whole thing. He's been doing it for about five years. And I can't imagine there's a farming operation anywhere that's better and more efficient than that crew. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a great crew, and Steve does a, does a great job. Yeah. And, and uh, like I said, it's, it's always a joy to get to uh, see your team in action. Well, they look like a well-oiled machine. I'm sure there's um, days when it's not always as well-oiled, but uh, they make it look uh, yeah, easy. Yeah, <laughs> Speaking of that, I guess, you know, as I think, you know, what, what do you want listeners to know about the work that you and your team at Stein do? Just that hard work is rewarded. I mean, you know. Yep, that's... That's the key to it. Huh? So I, I often wonder what the world soybean yields would be today if Harry Stein and Bill had not done soybean breeding. Yeah, because that started. Uh, I mean, we've we've had Bill on the podcast. I think it was 1968. He said he had started. Yeah. He came back and started work with Harry, and that's a, that's a great point. It's it's a question to where would the soybean industry be if not for the work of those two individuals. And by extension, the work that you and your crew have done to help make all that, the data, right? The data is what drove yeah. all of those decisions. There's two parts of that. One, you have to run the plots and grow the fields to be able to gather the data. Uh, and that's the work that you and your team do. And then secondly, you have to have the analytical mind to choose the right products. And between Harry and, and Bill Eby and now Chuck Hansen, uh, they do a tremendous job of um, deciphering 
the data. I always tell people probably nobody, uh, nobody else in, in the industry is better long-term at looking at the numbers and picking the right things. And I think that's one of the great testaments to our company. We've been visiting today with longtime Stein employee Fred Eby about his history with the company and how Stein's farm operation has evolved over the years. Fred, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, that's our time today. I want to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield. <laughs>